0: This is Untold, the Connecticut Mirrors news and culture podcast. We have three simple charges. Challenge assumptions, seek understanding, and leave nothing untold.
1: I'm Mercy Quay. And I'm John Dankowski. We hold these truths to be self-evident. All this season, we've been examining Thomas Jefferson's words from the Declaration of Independence to see if they still ring true for us today.
0: Just 15 years after
1: the declaration
0: was written, James Madison penned the Second Amendment, telling us that the right of the people to keep and bear arms shall not be infringed. It's another old phrase that has profoundly shaped our modern society.
1: Each year for the last five years, more people under the age of 24 have died from gunshot wounds than in car crashes in the U.S. Just let that sink in. And many more Americans are also beginning to cite gun violence as a deciding factor in their vote. 90% of people questioned in a major poll this summer said gun control was important, and they rated it as one of their top three issues alongside inflation and the economy.
0: Year after year, the city of Hartford sees the highest number of gun deaths in the state, an average of 25 a year since 2015.
1: And on this episode, we'll find out what that looks like from someone who sees that violence up close. We're going to sit down with Tyrone Bynum, who works with Hartford Communities That Care, when a gunshot victim arrives in the emergency room, it's his job to be there to offer support and counseling.
2: Because usually when you're traumatized or just recently in the moment been wounded, you're more likely to listen and be open to help. Mm-hmm. So in those moments, we try to build a bond of trust and safety. Mm-hmm.
0: all the time, we say, all right, something is self-evident, and then we do jumping jacks with our hands, Mm -hmm. (laughs) right, to figure out how it might be self-evident. For me, um, on my side, it is very clear that we shouldn't have guns. I don't think that we need to do any jumping jacks to do to get to that but I do see how um, how folks maybe in your neck of the woods up in Winstead might feel very differently it was like we need guns for very specific things and how could you even suggest a thing
1: yeah like and, I, and I think that if if we are able to have real conversations with people and not have everyone twist themselves up in knots as you say in order to to make make their point, I think that, you know, there is a reality in which you can make an argument why guns are needed for certain things and why guns aren't needed for other things at all. Mm-hmm. Why certain guns might be needed, but why certain guns should be banned and no one should have them. Mm-hmm. And I think where I come from as a, as a journalist, I, I, I try to look at, you know, preponderance of evidence Let's try to get to the truth as much as we possibly can. And there are some truths that are self-evident by the, by the very nature of the statistical baggage that they carry around and have carried around for such a long time. And the fact is, is that in places where there are more guns, more people die from guns.
0: Yep, and play, in homes that have access to guns, Suicide by gun goes up wildly.
1: And suicide by gun is by far the way in which people take their own lives by suicide. And it is a very, again, scientifically, it is shown to be a very short jump between a suicidal ideation, the presence of a gun, and an action which can never be taken back. That is proven to be such a short little distance that we could save hundreds of thousands of lives by making a few small
0: exactly. changes. Mm-hmm.
1: And because of the mental gymnastics and because there are other truths there are, that are more self-evident to a lot of people, we, we can't see a way forward to make those changes yeah. despite the Mm self-evident evidence there's a a way that gun violence
0: impacts everyone around it not just the people who are you know touched by the gun or the bullet but the family members of um, the folks touched by it the reporters who are covering it anyone who is an onlooker because you are now forced to feel emotions that you otherwise would not have if a trigger hadn't been pulled.
1: Give give me your name and tell me what you do for a living.
2: Tyrone Bynum Jr. And I'm a crisis intervention specialist for Hartford Communities That Care.
0: What does that mean? If if someone were to say, oh, uh, "Okay, I need your help," what does that mean on your on a daily basis for you?
2: Our role, in particular, we're advocates of victims of crime all across the board, or advocates for residents in our communities all across the board. So it all depends on a, a, a necessity basis. But like, what is it? What is that that you need help with? More times than not, we um we'll get a phone call from St. Francis Hospital, and alerting us that someone's just been victimized either by a gunshot wound or um, a stabbing or physical assault. Um, Our team will show up at the hospital within 15 minutes. We get there. We um, meet with the charge nurse. Then after that, if we're lucky, if the victim survives their injuries, we meet with them bedside. And it's a term they use called the golden moment because usually when you're traumatized or just really recently in the moment been wounded, you're more likely to listen and be open open to help. Mm -hmm. So in those moments, we try to build a bond of trust and safety with the person that just been wounded. Then we offer them services to see if they want them when they leave or get discharged. Maybe physical therapy, clinical therapy, relocation, job readiness, Anything they need to um, get them out of that perpetuated cycle of being um, victimized. The doctors do their best part, but there's elements in there that the doctors can't always heal. Mm-hmm. And it's sometimes the psychological part, you know, and going back into these environments in which they were just wounded. So our job is not only on the surface level to provide services, but to heal. Yeah,
1: so. I, I never heard that term, the golden moment. Yeah,
0: no, uh, certainly, I like that certainly not it w- yeah. when it comes to sort of crisis prevention and crisis intervention.
1: When you show up mm-hmm. when someone is at St. Francis Hospital. Mm-hmm. G- g- tell us a story, if you would. I mean, give me, give me an example of, of what that looks like. What, what maybe the individual and the families have gone through.
2: Um, I'll share two stories that speak to two different normalities. I remember one circumstance, um, a young man was wounded by a gunshot and we came and just based off his size and age, it was just like, wow, man, I hope this little dude is going to be okay. He seemed to be going through a shock. We speak to him. So we're like, let's go speak to his family and the family in but so many ways was like, he'll be back again or like, that's not the first time. And we understand it, but it was just one of those things like, wow, a bullet really rips through your flesh and it causes damages inside of muscles you'll never see. And that takes time to heal, and you got to be in an environment where you could be safe. You got victims who get discharged and go back to the same environment the same day sometimes if they're not connected to services. Mm-hmm. So in that piece, I was just like, wow, I don't think they really know what just occurred, but we've normalized violence so much that it's like, all right, as long as he's not dead, we can live with it. Then we didn't have a circumstance where... An individual um, had just been the victim of homicide. And in our role, we don't deliver that news. That's for the nurses and doctors. But yes. needless to say, we're there for the support of the families. So this was a time where we're about to see a mother's reality change. Uh-huh. Like, And I remember we brought them in the family room, and the mother came in, and already the families are praying But the doctors already know. So you watching the doctors know and then seeing a family pray, that element right there is just like, damn, it's chewing me up because it's like this family is praying to God, but this doctor knows.
1: They're praying for something that we absolutely know is is not going
2: to happen. So when the doctor comes in and you just see the family holding hands tight, crying, and they're just waiting, praying, and then the doctor says, We done all we can do. I'm sorry. There's a scream that a mother has that's, it echoes for life. Like, like, like it's literally spirit changing because that scream is a scream for however long that that child, say if the child was 18, or even if the individual was 34, if the mother is there, that's a 34-year burst. A 18-year-old burst of pain. And, and when you hear it, it's hard being professional because we're there for support. We're there for advocacy. So we have to be as strong as we can. Mm-hmm. It's hard. And not for nothing, a lot of these victims we serve are from these communities in which we grew up in. So we may know some of these family members or came across them in some walk away of life. And it's just when you hear that cry and you see the family... Some passing out, some running around. Just that, just that element right there, it hits you. This is not normal. Nobody wants to live like this. No. 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 This part right here. Who, who, who says people chooses and wants to experience this right here? Mm-hmm. This is frightening, mm-hmm. <laughs> and it's life changing. Mm-hmm. But it reminds me why our work is necessary to be able to convey. Please. Get out of line of fire. Please change. Because it's been documented that if you don't get services and you've been a victim of crime, you'll either come back again or you'll die the next time. Mm -hmm. Through a pathology of time, this is the normality. But for me, in that moment, to see a mother get the news that the child she birthed and named and couldn't wait to get home to make a bottle and this is my son. And look, y'all, nine months I finally had him or well, He was heavy. Oh, that boy was this. <laughs> then to turn around and get to yeah. hear, we did all we can do. That scream is unforgettable. And I think that's the element in that that really speaks to not only the work, but the reality. There's crying mothers every day. With that same scream I heard or hear, mm-hmm. There's somebody's mom doing that right now. Mm.
1: Thank you for sharing that.
0: That story, I think, embodies the need for your work um, and the need for an organization like yours uh, and the need for social services um, that prioritize relationship building.
1: Why did you decide to start doing this?
2: Well... (laughs) It wasn't really like I decided. Like It's not like I went on Indeed and seen the application. Mm-hmm. Um, it just so happened one of the senior intervention specialists actually had me as a youth when I was like 11 years old, growing up right here in Hartford as well. And interesting enough, at 11, I had just moved to Hartford from Oakland, California. And when I came here, I, didn't, I don't have any siblings older than me or cousins here. It was just me and my younger sister. So... When we moved here, those moments, there was elements of vulnerability, um, fear of not knowing, um, the fear of missing out, not being included, because here I am from a whole other state. Needless to say, this is still my adolescent days, and young men are aggressive. We're trying to find ourselves, and in those moments, my mother didn't have the resources um, in the household to sustain me. My father worked three jobs, so... There was a program that one of our intervention specialists started at that time, and it was called the 21st Century Program, and it reached out to young individuals in the city. You'll come before, after school, during the summer, and the um, best part about it was a lot of the um, staff and faculty, that was like the counselors, they were only like five or six, seven years older than us, so they had a relatively good bond of being able to connect with us, but that maturity... And skills to have us deal with a lot of our emotional pain, and it was just a great environment. And then from there, just so happened that they took a liking to me, and once we built those bonds and relationships, they um offered me a job, and I um happily off um took it. <laughs> I,
1: I want to get back to to the people that you work with when you talk about working with victims. Uh, victim means something different everywhere, right? And I sense, as you talk about victims, that you're talking about people, they may well have also been perpetrators at some time.
0: Mm -hmm.
1: But there's a, you seem to be giving us a different definition of what a victim is that you're trying to help. Can you just talk that through a little bit with me?
2: Sure, and I'm happy you mentioned that because, of course, if you're a victim and you've been on the receiving end, you're a victim. However, especially when it comes to violence and gun violence, perpetuators are victims as well. Mm -hmm. Usually what happens is when the individual has been victimized violently, just like if you have a dilemma in school, you want to ask the best professor, the best tutor, how do I solve this issue? In inner city communities, more times than often, my professor may tell me your best answer is to go get back at him. Because if you don't, he could come back and harm your family. Or my tutor may say, man, you got to keep, I'd rather you go to jail for having a gun to end up dead in the streets. So victims, yes. Perpetuators are also victims themselves. So. We're
0: talking this season about things that are self-evident. Um, mm. Well, not just things mm. that are self-evident. We're talking this season about things that are supposed to be self-evident but might be a lot more nuanced. Mm. right? What in your work might fit that description?
2: I think that like, we have a society where there's no room for excuses. We all had it rough. You got to try this. But there's an element with dealing with urban communities that it's, it's not the same And trying to capture that in, in words. is hard. Mm. It's hard to try to convey to a group of individuals that this is the results when you don't have a lot of food or don't have love. Like, you have people walking around who haven't heard I love you since 1993. Yeah children who haven't been hugged since, you know what I'm trying to say? And in elementary ways, you'll be like, well, what does that mean? What does that play a part in your life? You ask yourself, how would you feel if you never seen or heard love or guaranteed something to eat? or But having to convey this into a data infographic model for everybody universally to understand <laughs> yeah. it, that's the hardest part. That's from a policy standpoint,
1: when people look at, you know, how are we going to help? Hartford, Connecticut. Well, if we give people jobs, if we give them economic opportunity, if we give them better schools, and these are the ways that policymakers think, but I have never, I've talked to thousands of politicians. and I've literally never heard anybody say what you just said, which is, it'd be nice to hear. I love you.
2: Yeah. Like that matters, right? It's so unfortunate because it almost takes like a, it's almost, um, you ever heard the story of um what's his, what's his name Squanto, hmm. mm-hmm. the indigenous person? He was all, he had to be in between the um the colonists and his tribe. He had yeah, to, yeah, yeah. he, had, he yeah. had to speak two different dialects to communicate. Needless yeah. to say, it's almost like that mm-hmm. because building that bridge is always challenging because the internalization. You can't find words to describe it. Mm-hmm. You can't find words when you, in a household, and your mother say. You know, you, you remind me of your damn father. You get on my nerves, get out. You go outside, you're being harassed or victim of implicit bias. People thinking you're a threat. People feeling like you're going to do something and you're not. That internalized pain is like walking around with a, 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 a anchor. Mm-hmm. It's it's simple things such as I love you that can change your life around. I don't agree a condone gun violence. I don't agree or disagree with you possession weapons because our country speaks to, America speaks to gun possession. (laughs) That's been the whole, you know what I'm saying, Mm -hmm. history of America. So there's a piece in there that you got to be transparent. There's young men out here who's been molested by grown men, victimized by grown men, and don't have a grown man protecting them. That weapon is their father. Mm -hmm. And what makes it sad is they didn't wake up like that. You know what I'm saying? So yep. it's it's a pathology and it's a perpetuation because there's a loss. There's a, there's a gap in there that's missing. But needless to say, a lot of our circumstances from weapons come from self-defense and safety. America prides itself on having a weapon and carrying and protecting yourself, protecting and serving, being patriotic. This comes with having protection. Right? Mm-hmm. So what's the difference between a soldier... With the American flag, with his weapon, I'm going to protect and serve of my country. Then one of my brothers outside with a hat on with his gun saying I'm protecting and serving my neighborhood.
0: Mm. Are you saying that you condone or that you understand the possession of guns um, for safety in some of these certain scenarios?
2: I overstand. Mm. I overstand it. It stems from what each and every human in this room wants to have in their life, and that's a sense of safety. Because this is the, this is, <laughs> sometimes this is the perception. People wake up, listen to rap music, drink, smoke weed, go outside and want to be ignorant. And that's furthest from the truth. And that, when you're told that and you internalize it and you know it's not the truth, that's the duality combat within yourself. Because now I'm fighting this, this perception that's being delivered to me. This is not even a fact. This is being delivered to me over and over and over. My community may not have the resilience I do. To be like, that's not true. Say if they buy into it and believe it. It gets to be a different war to the point where my mind, I can't focus on furthering my ed- education or wanting to get trainers yeah. to be a better person. I could barely think straight. And it's those parts, like I said, the intangible things you can't touch, that means way more than data. I
0: spend a lot of time, and especially this season, thinking about how the issue of gun control should be a, a an obvious conversation an open and shut conversation Mm. what you just said gives me a perspective of it's not actually that obvious and the things that we have been most concerned about we could probably look at from a different lens
2: that's the goal that's the goal because what makes one person laugh makes another cry so it's all about being empathetic and transparent no one wants to walk around with a weapon knowing if i get caught with this i'll have to go to jail But no one wants to walk around feeling like at any given moment, I'm vulnerable. I'm scared. I'm fearful. And unfortunately, I don't know how it is to be in a woman's body. But as men, that's a different type of walk when you're fearful. You're you're, you're willing to do whatever it takes to defend yourself. Not because you maliciously have it in your DNA to cause harm. That's a defense mechanism when you're unsafe. Hmm. It gets to be tricky. It gets to be scary. It gets to be very fearful. Well,
1: One of the things that that we do get to when we talk about gun control, you know, there's a lot of simplistic prescriptions for how to solve it, right? And one of the simplistic prescriptions actually bears itself out in data. Mm. Places where there are fewer guns have less gun violence and places where there are more guns have more gun violence. Mm. So from your perspective, if there were just fewer guns, if fewer people felt like they needed to protect themselves in that way, would there be less violence or is that a is that not the right way to look at it
2: if you look at circumstances in the past for urban communities this wasn't always the case
1: no.
2: during the 50s and 60s the the amount of um, two parent households psh, exceeds what we see now the the values the community camaraderie these elements you can't touch were a part of the structure, so it wasn't a normality of violence, if you will. You may have skirmishes, but if you speak to those individuals that I was fortunate enough to come across, and even if you just read, there wasn't a plethora of murders going on in urban communities during the 50s and 60s because they were too busy working together, going against the powers that be. So it was more team, if anything. You had a collective
0: issue that you needed to.
2: It was a whole different walk. Then once you get to the 70s, when you had the whole war going on, a lot of fathers, uncles, and brothers were taken from their homes and go to the war. The majority of those who came back came back with habits, drug habits and dealing with post-traumatic stress from coming from war areas. Now you're putting them back into areas without the proper medical treatment, rehabilitation practices. So now they're dealing with symptoms that take professional clinical help. (laughs) And you put them back in these environments Mm -hmm. Then you have the whole war on drugs In the 80s Then you have the whole mass incarceration So there's been Generational circumstances That made it harder But if you go back to the foundation You will see this was not always the case So I agree Less guns, you will have less gun violence Because that's been proven There's been areas right here in Hartford That were not what they are now And if you look at them now one of the most biggest common denominators is the access and uses of guns.
1: I, I I mentioned how a lot of policymakers clearly like don't get a whole lot of what you're saying. And I, I'm sure that you've you've seen this, right? That there's just a, a disconnect between the people who are up at the Capitol and the people that you work with. If you have an opportunity to say to policymakers, People who can change something about the resources, change something about the laws, change something about something. What would you what would you ask them to do?
2: These policymakers and lawmakers, they know the answers. Because aside from just knowing it from a sociological perspective, at a certain part in American history, mm-hmm. on these same streets and same communities, we had Italian Americans. Jewish Americans, Irish Americans, Polish Americans that were going through the same thing. When we watch, and I hate to use it for an example, but when we watch these old gangster movies, a lot of those movies mocked the Italian mafia. The Italian mafia were individuals who more than likely were immigrants or going through financial hardships in America, and they found alternative ways to feed their families. Now, when we watch these mafia movies, what are they doing? They're not changing policies.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: They're not, you know what I'm saying? They, yep. they, they're they, doing what we see outside right now, but with um individuals who resemble my circumstance. It just so happened that <laughs> policymakers and a lot of government assistants were able to fund and help them to get out of that circumstance. We haven't yet. Or we get little scraps to work with and by the time that the resources do trickle down, the problems then magnify or got double because these are still symptoms people are dealing with from nineteen eighty three. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Like this is not just a post, this is a chronic or a continuation. So
1: But 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 part of what you're saying though is that over time, those Italian Americans and those Jewish Americans and those Irish Americans who were in all the same living in all the same streets in Hartford. Right eventually gained some political clout and authority they began to change laws and rules that benefited their communities and they got out of a cycle in which people felt like yeah we have to carry guns around in order to to keep our to keep ourselves safe to me that sounds like a prescription for
2: more political influence we have a history of Coming together, like, you didn't had countless groups, for example, I'm going to go with the most obvious, the Black Panther Party. You had communities who had examples of showing you how to connect with your community, build, organize, mm-hmm. and go to these legislative um, levels to bring awareness. But when you learn about Pro mm-hmm. and a lot of these organizations undermining and defunding deep and deep-rooting these same communities that were trying to do it the same way, it creates a pathology of why try. Mm-hmm. We try. Look what they did to the Black Panthers. Yep. Look what they did to this group. Look what they did to um all these individuals. And you'll start to internalize that because you're like, a, man, if they could kill Malcolm X, look what, they, what what they do to me. Look what happened when we tried to do this. Black Wall Street, Oklahoma, all of these type of cir- circumstances that show every time we try, something happens to knock us down. That can get discouraging.
1: Well, yeah. And, and, and Marcia, I just want to say, I don't want to make it sound like, well, obviously, if we just had more. But that's the missing part. The missing part of this is, is that there's been this lack of ability to do that because of what you just said.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And I think that there's also the element of of whiteness, right, that eventually all of these classes that we're talking about, Polish Americans, Irish Americans, Italian Americans had the ability to shirk their cultural or heritage identity and say, no, I'm now white and if you can if you can buy into whiteness right then you have you now have a currency that is worth more than you lost mm-hmm. now black and brown people will never be able to buy into whiteness and it's also when you're talking about these movies that we see mafia movies when we it's also the reason why we look at you know, we look at, you know, A Bronx Tale or we look at The Sopranos, The Godfather, and we, we, we romanticize mm-hmm. that lifestyle. Mm-hmm. But if you look at, for instance, Paid in Fuller Belly, that's a completely different lifestyle. And most people won't even know what those movies are. It's, it's,
1: it's literally it's, mm-hmm. it's, a, it's a criminal gangster lifestyle just played out in different ways and exactly. different, in different places. Mm-hmm. But the fact is, is that as soon as you put a black face on it, it becomes a very different thing. In the public's
2: consciousness. Absolutely. Oh, absolutely.
0: What gives you hope inside of your work? I mean, tell me about the way that you, hope is a discipline, right? I was talking absolutely. about this to someone else recently, The hope is a discipline. Absolutely. So how do you remain disciplined in that hope?
2: Looking at those who did the, did the work before me and looking at those who will need the work later, really just keeping in mind, People had it worse than me. I always tell myself, better kings dealt with worse things. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So if there's an element in which individuals who had less resources than me was able to sustain and reach goals as far as this work, there's no excuse for me. So my hope lies in just knowing where there's a will, there's a way. And if I care enough, I'll I'll find a way.
0: And do you bring that that discipline that hope that point of view that you just mentioned mm. to the victims that you're working with
2: um now the hope sometimes yes but there's a there's also a piece in there where you got to meet individuals where they are mm. and a lot of times we're dealing with individuals who don't know they're living in traumatic situations uh-huh. and sometimes speaking to certain pathologies, you can actually make someone feel offended mm-hmm. or make them feel belittled if you speak in high regard of a hopeful type. It's, it's, all, sure. it's, it's, it's a different walk each person. Mm. Each victim has different needs to be met. Some may not want to further their secondary educational skills. Some may feel like they need to relocate. Some may just feel they need more hours at work. Mm. Some may just feel, well, I just need to help with this one bill. And there's an element in there that's safety Looks and feel differently to all of us. So essentially, whatever looks safe or feels safe, that's what we try to engage with the victims for. Because mm. it's always cool to leave yeah. some room for hope, mm-hmm. to give a, a big vision for them to try to, you know, embody. But it starts with safety first, and so sometimes it, it takes five years <laughs> to get a person to feel safe. Mm. So not having a concept of time is essential for me, at least. Mm. The work that you do
1: and others who do work like yours. um, When you show up for victims without a gun, it's a very different message than when you show up for victims with a gun. I mean, there's a reason why people call the police, because they're scared, because something's happened, because their house has been broken into, whatever. But when the first thing that happens is someone shows up with a sidearm I don't know. It feels like it sends a very different message. And there's been a lot of talk in terms of police report reform over the course of the last couple of years that when people say defund the police, it's not just, you know, disband the police, but it's it's have more people show up like you. Right. Without a gun on, on their hip to try to help, as opposed to the first person that they see being someone who's carrying a lethal weapon.
2: I always felt like the tongue is almighty than the sword anyway. (laughs) (laughs) You could reach a a person one time with the right words. I got to carry that gun with me all the time to keep you in place. Mm -hmm. Yes. If I say one thing right the one one time, I don't need a gun. So individuals want to feel like individuals. They want to feel like humans. I want to feel dignified. I want to feel, be transparent. The presence of a gun is is, is such a different demoralizing situation because at any given moment, you're controlling my life. Right. At any given moment, my life can change depending on how you feel. Whereas in, if I don't have a weapon and I'm giving you the floor to talk and you can speak, you feel so much better at least releasing. Well, you're,
1: you're on even ground, right? You're both speaking from the same place exactly. of safety. Exactly. That's the important thing.
0: And it also it also uh, offers this perception of, in addition to being on even ground, you're not an authority here. You're your friend, right? You're a your support system Absolutely. as opposed to an authority a
2: advocate. Yeah. I'm here for you. You tell me what do you need, right? And sometimes our people don't know how to hear or, or react when they hear something like that because you've been beaten down for so long. How you feel don't matter. I'm going to tell you what you're going to do. This is what you're going to take. When you give an individual a chance to speak to their safety, their necessities, their wants, their needs, their desires, you are, in but so many ways, changing their brain activity. That That's life. That, that's, I think that's that was, in so many ways, to be not too religious, <laughs> but to be symbolic on the whole story with Jesus and Lazarus. We see Lazarus and wake him up every day.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: Every day we waking someone up from the dead. So everyone wants to feel loved. My young dudes I build with all the time. Some of them are high-risk youth. Some of them may be perpetuators and victims of crime. But I remind them, when you were born, somebody had the greatest time of their life. You brought a a spark to somebody. Don't forget that. You weren't just born just to be here. Somebody was over happily. And, and, and break, You were their heavenly deliverance mm-hmm. Don't lose that So we have to remind Constantly We're people first And humans first Tyrone, thank you
1: Thank
0: you so much for the work that you do And for joining us today
2: Thank you for inviting me And having me And being patient I know I could talk a lot but <laughs> Needless to say I definitely um, enjoyed this dialogue It was very, very I had a lot of substance Thank Absolutely. you so much thank you
1: This is Untold, a Connecticut Mirror podcast. You can go to ctmirror.org slash untold for bonus content and photos from this episode. Look us up on social, drop us an email. Don't forget to send us your untold stories and tell us what's going on in your community. Oh, and if you like what you've heard, leave us a review and share this episode with a friend who'd love it too. Our music is composed and produced by Mark Lyon. Graphic design for Untold is by Jordana Hertz. We have digital support from Kyle Constable. Untold is produced and edited by Harriet Jones. Thanks to the
0: Connecticut Mirror's executive editor, Beth Hamilton, and publisher, Bruce Putterman.